Amen. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to continue our look this morning. We're going to continue our look this morning at uh, James chapter 2, actually. But I want to start in Hebrews 13. In order to really understand the book of James, you have to understand where it is in your Bible. In order to really understand what God wants to say to us in the book of James, you have to understand where it is in your Bible. Now, this is true of every book in your Bible. It is important that you begin to understand that the Bible is not a large book of texts. That's not what it is. It's not a bunch of verses arbitrarily thrown into a big, big pile of of, uh, white pages where preachers and teachers, where missionaries and evangelists can go through and pull out a verse here and pull out a verse there and say clever things that they want to say and seek to persuade people to behave or to do certain things, though that's often done. But that is not the purpose of your Bible. The purpose of your Bible is that you would know the God that loves you. It is His, listen, hear this, it is His Word given to man given to us, given to you. And God wants you to understand that it is indeed given progressively. And what that means is, if you go back to the very beginning, if you, go, if you open the leather cover and get past where, the, uh, where your family history is, you know, the marriages and the births and the, all, of that, all those pages that were added, when you get finally down to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Now, there, there is no, God doesn't explain himself. He doesn't tell us what he was doing before, what we understand as the beginning. He doesn't need to. If he did, you wouldn't understand it anyway. But he expresses that he is the beginning of all things that you know, all things that you understand. I, um, I marvel more and more at the height of the arrogance of man to call God into question because of their limited understanding. If, if you could understand God, and I mean this with all, all sincerity, if you could understand God as he is, he wouldn't be God. Or you would be one or the other, and you're not. We are so ignorant in the age in which we live. Now listen, and I, when I say that, I'm not talking about the uneducated ignorance. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about the educated ignorance of America. I'm talking about the fact that for some reason, we actually believe that someone with a Harvard or an MIT or a Duke education is somehow more capable of telling you about things that really matter than the God who created you is. In fact, we would allow them to question whether the God that created us even is or not because of the number of letters that come after their name, the number of of MDs or PhDs or whatever it is that they have. And yet the Bible says clearly that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Now, I understand that's not a very popular thing to say. I, I recognize that. In fact, I recognize that by making a statement like that, there are people who would say that I'm expressing my ignorance. And I express my ignorance, but this is not how I do it. See, God is who he says he is. 
God is not who I say he is. God is not who you say he is. God is who he says he is. There are too many preachers and teachers who are more interested in filling a room than expressing what the word of God says. There are too many there are too many churches in America that care more about the music and the program than about the glory of God. And, and, and the thing is, what every, every Sunday school teacher, what every worker ever in the, in the church, what every pastor, every teacher needs to, recommend, needs to recognize is that each and every one of us are going to give an answer for what we say. So the only thing we can do, and I mean this with all my heart, the only thing we should ever want to do is to accurately point out what the book already says. The best thing any preacher can do, the best sermon you've ever heard had nothing to do with energizing you or exercising you or motivating you. The best sermons you've ever heard have to do with that is what that says. That is what that says. That's marvelous. My God is awesome. You know, Travis just testified first in word and then in song that he doesn't even understand his salvation. And you know what? I don't understand my salvation. Paul didn't understand his salvation. How can it be? How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? What happened in my life that my rebellion, my selfishness was turned away and that instead I cared about the God who loved me? Now, I will say this, and I, I, with all of my heart, I hope you understand this. If, listen, if the law of God scares you to death, good for you, because it ought to. But if the law of God is what you're concerned about for your salvation, if the law of God is what you're trying to keep to gain favor with God, just abandon that. Just abandon that. Because it is the love of God that saves. The law of God points out that we're guilty. It is a wonderful day. That, uh, it, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. And it is the love of God. It was when someone told me that all of my guilt was real and that God still loved me. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That I was guilty, there was no doubt, but that God would rescue me, I could not understand. In fact, it was the thing that stood in the way of my salvation. What stood in the way of my salvation wasn't the fact that I knew I was guilty. I knew I was guilty. It wasn't the fact that someone told me that God would forgive me. I, I read that God would forgive me. I could not understand why God would forgive me. And I almost let that get in the way until I recognized you don't understand love. Do you understand? Listen, we do things because. Something motivates us to do things. We love the lovely, right? We care for those who will reciprocate that care to us. And if they won't reciprocate that, that love to us or that care to us, well, away with you anyway then. Why did I ever waste my time with you anyway? But our God is not like that. In the book of Hebrews, and we don't have time to study the book of Hebrews, obviously. We don't even have time to rehearse the book of Hebrews. But in the book of Hebrews, you will find out that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Messiah. That he is your and the only great high priest. The, listen, listen. The only one that can touch your dirty life and the holy throne of God at the same time is Jesus. 
He's the only one that can do so. And praise God, he wants to do so. He wants to rescue you and take you before the throne of grace. He wants to do that in your life. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is the sacrifice, but he's also the one that takes the blood in before God. And when he takes this blood, he pleads for you with his blood. Not your good works, his blood. He pleads for you with his blood. And if you're born again, he ever liveth to make that intercession for you. You and I, so long as we're here on this earth, will always know what it feels like to fail. We'll always know what it feels like to have sin in our hearts. We'll always know what it feels like to wrestle with the inward man who loves the law of God, and yet Adam wants to have his way all the time. We'll recognize that, but praise God, you have an advocate all the time. But listen, I, I want you to hear better news than that. And I mean this with all my heart. Better news than the one who ever lives to make intercession for you. Because the same one that lives to make intercession for you is the one that's going to change you. Listen to me. Church isn't going to change you. Your efforts certainly aren't going to change you. We are his workmanship. It is, listen, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is committed to making you a new creature. It is the power of God that, is, that has saved you and it is the power of God that sanctifies you and it is the power of God that glorifies you. It is the power of God that justifies you. It is all the power of God. And listen, listen, God wants to set you free from your fleshly works. All of it, all of it. We do not need to live our lives ever again in selfishness. Never, ever again. And when we fail, and we will. You know, one of the things that I really wrestled with, very early in my Christian life, I had some sense that it was possible to live better than I was already living. And so, as we see in the book of Romans, chapter 7, I was doubling down on effort. Lord, I promise I'll do better. I, yeah, listen, I'm really glad you saved me. You're going to be really glad you saved me. Just give me a minute. Amen? I'm going to be a better Christian than I was yesterday. Watch. And thank God for the grace of God. Amen? Because listen, listen, not of works, lest any man should boast. Had I been able to serve God in my own strength, I promise you I would have boasted about it. As Spurgeon said, if your robe of righteousness contained a single thread that had your works in it, all of eternity we would point to our little thread. Here's my little thread. Yeah, the rest of the robe, Jesus did all the rest of the robe, but here's my little thread. Have you got one? Oh, look, you got a little thread too. Good for you. None, not nothing in your robe of righteousness will be anything that you've done. Nothing. Now, praise God for good works. This is the thing. This is what you're going to learn. This is what we're going to find out is that this, this, this one who ever liveth to make intercession, who's pouring out this whole new quality of life, allows us, works in our hearts in such a way, for it is God that worketh in you both the will and do of his good pleasure, that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You can live the life that God would have you to. But when you do, you won't boast about it. You won't brag about it. But it really will change. If your life is not changing, the book of James says, I'm not sure you have the real thing. If you have the real thing, your life will change. It has to. It has to. If you are a new creature, you are a new creature. And if you are a new creature, then there are things that God is going to change in your life. Now, we're getting into chapter 2 today. So, so I want you to listen. I'm going to just show you a verse that sums up Hebrews, Hebrews for you. Uh, go to verse 20 and 21, actually two verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. 
Listen to this. Now the God of peace, what a wonderful introduction to our God. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect and every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Listen. So that's the promise. Your great high priest giving you, pouring out in you. Now listen, there's a picture of this. There's a tremendous picture of this in the Old Testament. After they went into the Holy of Holies, after the high priest once a year took blood into the Holy of Holies, when he came back out, after the blood was received, when he came back out, he literally walked to the door of the tabernacle, stood in front of the entire nation of Israel, which gathered on this day, and he lifted up his hands and he said, God blesses you. And it wasn't just a symbol. He literally, God was using this man to pour out a blessing on the entire nation of Israel. God blesses you. God loves you. God wants to give you great power in your lives. Amen? That's just a picture. That's just a picture. The reality is the same Lord Jesus, who is the only great high priest, who took that blood in for you and I, now comes into every single one of our hearts that are a new creature and says, I'm going to pour out a whole new power in your life. The picture that you see in the Old Testament is the reality that I'm going to pour out into your life now. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to conform you to my image. You're going to behave yourself the way Jesus behaves himself. Praise God for that. Because if it wasn't true, it could never happen. You could never do it. I could never do it. But God is able to do this. And I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Yes, these things can be true. You get no, Listen, if I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, then they can be done. I just don't get any glory in it, right? I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So when I do a good thing, I don't get any glory. Who does? Jesus. He did it. Amen? But I can still do it, praise God. My life is so changed that I can now be kind where I wasn't kind before. I can now be unselfish where I was always selfish before. Where I used to think I was great, I now realize that I'm not. But in all of these things, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. We mu- Listen, there is no substitute for humility. Christian, there's no substitute for humility. Stop trying to do good so you can show others what a good Christian you are. Instead, let them see what a great Savior you have. Because I promise you, when you go to the book of Revelation chapter 5, when we're singing Thou Art Worthy, you're not the one we're singing to. Amen? But you are in the crowd that is singing if you're a new creature. All of us, and we'll sing to one, not to David, not to Abraham, not to Paul, not to Peter, not to Hudson Taylor, to Jesus. Thou art worthy. Why? Because he is. By the way, you'll have perfect knowledge at that point. You'll understand what you're talking about. Amen? Maybe the first time in your life, but you'll understand what you're talking about. And when we know what we should know, what we will say is, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. So, now, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. As soon as you're a new creature... Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, 
that the trying of your faith worketh patience. When you're changed, when you're born again, when you're a new creature, there is a warfare that begins. There is a warfare that begins. And here's the irony. All the things you were already doing suddenly become your own enemy. All the, all the selfishness of your life, all the me, me, me in your life, all the things that you were doing when you were saved, your normal daily life suddenly becomes a problem. And God says, don't be surprised when that happens because I'm going to give you victory over all of these things in your life. Look at verse, seven, uh, look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So the thing is, you are going to have trial in your life. You are going to have difficulty in your life. Now let me say this, look here for a second. I really believe with all of my heart, and I believe the Bible bears this out, that if God could teach us in humility, he would teach us in humility. But we don't learn in humility very often. When everything is going well in a child of God's life, we have a tendency to behave selfishly or even self-sufficiently. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, in the midst of this difficulty that's taken place in, in Carolina's life, uh, Silas Spain uh, sent a text, and he said, it's remarkable how quickly the child of God will become helplessly dependent upon the only one that can do anything in the midst of a difficulty. And we sure will. We'll fall immediately to our knees, and we will cry like a baby to the only one that can do anything. And then he does, we'll thank him for a minute, and then we'll dust ourselves off, and we'll get up, and we'll walk in our own sufficiency again. Listen to me. The different, listen, I mean this with all my heart. The difference between what we would call Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael's life and the average American Christian life has nothing to do with the power of God. It has to do with the dependency of the one that God will work in. Do you understand what I'm saying? God has every desire for your life to be every bit as powerful, not as Amy Carmichael's life or Hudson Taylor's life, not as the Apostle Paul's life or Mary's life, but as powerful as the Lord Jesus Christ's life. Now listen, you're not God, and I'm not telling you you're going to be, but it is God that lives in you. It, listen, I don't want to make Hudson Taylor the target. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't want Hudson Taylor to be the target. You want Christ to be the target. It is Christ in you. The expectation, the hope, the very possibility of glory in your life is Jesus Christ in you. And he says, now listen, in the book of Hebrews, we see that this is going to be the reality of our life. But in the book of James, we realize that God wants this to be the reality of our, and this is so important. This, is, this changes everything in my life, in your everyday life. I know I gave this testimony a little while ago, a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night, one of the... Um, young adults, uh, recent college graduate, uh, gave this testimony. And, and I'm going to word it in, in the best of my memory. Basically, he has come to understand that God is not interested in him giving him, in, in, in us. God is not interested in this young man giving God all of his life for a whole day every couple of weeks. Do you understand? That's not what God wants. He wants you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. Now, I left out one word. What word did I leave out? 
daily, daily. Now let me say this. This is for your good, not his. Do you understand? God does not want to give you a powerful daily life for his good. He already has it all. He wants to give you this for your good. And probably more importantly, for the good of everybody around you. Because how much better would it be for your immediate family, for your extended family, for your coworkers, for your neighbors, if they saw Christ in you instead of you in you, moment by moment, day by day. And this is what we're learning. This is what we're seeing in the book of James. Now, I don't have time to go through chapter 1 again, but I want you to notice how chapter 1 closed out, okay? I want you to notice how chapter 1 closed out. If any man among you seem to be religious. There's so many people walking in their own religion, walking in their own honor, walking in their own glory, but their tongue gives them away. And oh, how the book of James is going to have so much to say about the tongue. Let me tell you something. Your tongue tells on you all the time. My tongue tells on me. You know, one of the things that began to happen in my life, really began to happen in my life, is I began to really be aware of how many things I wish I didn't say. And so I stopped saying them, largely. You can, tell my, you can ask my family, I didn't stop saying them completely. But I, started, I stopped saying them largely. But I didn't stop thinking them. Right? And I thought it was a victory just to not say it. Amen? Right? Look at me. Look at a mature Christian I am. But what we realize is our thought life then betrays us. Our thought life then betrays us. So there's got to be a greater victory than that. There's got to be a... You know, there's a, there's a passage that talks about um, th- that, which is, that which fills our heart overflowing and coming out of our mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. See, listen, I, I, this is so important. I used to really think when I would say something terrible, wow, good thing I got that out. I didn't realize I had that in there. And then I studied that passage in the Greek. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And what that passage says, literally, is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So what that means is this. There's so much of that in you that that had to come out. It didn't all come out. That was the spillover of the cesspool that's in your heart. And that was convicting. Because what I realized is the work of grace that God had done in my heart must be far deeper then I was allowing him to do it. What God wanted to accomplish, I, and listen, listen, how do you stop God from accomplishing this great work in your life? And the answer is pride. Pride. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists, and the word is stiff arm, but he resists the proud. Literally, you cannot approach me any closer than this in your pride. You will have to humble yourself. If any man seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. You, listen, you can deceive yourself, but you're not deceiving God. You're probably not even deceiving your family. I know I said this a couple weeks ago, but it's surprising how many times I hear somebody say something and I think, well, how's the, what's the thought that really runs through your mind? Wow, you're pretty full of yourself. You don't say that. That would be embarrassing, right? And I, I hate social awkwardness, you know? So you don't say that. But it says, you may deceive yourself, but you're not deceiving others. And you're surely not deceiving God. And listen, listen, the purpose, the purpose, why does God tell us this right in chapter 1? Why does he tell us these things? Why does he tell us right at the beginning of chapter 1? If you're going to ask God for anything, trust him. Or don't bother to ask him. Why does he tell us these things in chapter 1? Because he wants to get it out of the way to be.
At the very beginning, God wants you to understand, if you're going to be changed in your daily life, trust God and stop trusting yourself. And then he wants, you to, and then he wants to say, now shut up. And I don't mean to be, sound mean-spirited about it. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be slow to speak. Be slow to wrath. Understand that your wrath is not working the righteousness of God. You can walk around and tell everybody all day long everything that's wrong with them. It won't help them, and it won't give God any glory. So stop it. That's what God says. So then he goes on, then he goes on and says in verse 27 what real religion looks like, what pure religion and undefiled looks like. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. There are two things. One, help those who cannot help themselves, who cannot thank you financially, who cannot give you gifts, who can give you no return, and secondly, leave the world alone. That's what God wants to do. That's the change he wants to make. So now, this brings us right into chapter two. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. Notice how chapter two picks up where chapter one left off. Christianity is not like other world religions. Christianity is not even like the Jewish religion of their day. Now when I say the Jewish religion of their day, I'm not telling you that the Old Testament is wrong. I'm telling you that the way the Hebrews were living what the Old Testament taught was wrong. And Jesus came to set them free from that and they killed him for it. Do you understand? But what American Christianity is doing today is almost entirely wrong also. And we have the Holy Ghost. We have the fullness of the Holy Ghost, and yet the average American church is so full of pride and self. It is, it is not just sad, it is disgusting. And God wants to set us free from all of this, truly set us free from all of this. Now, notice, my brethren, have not the faith now, by the way, notice this. It's not faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. What God is saying is this. If you're going to live your life like the Lord Jesus lived his life, and how did the Lord Jesus live his life? He trusted the Father. He just trusted the Father. Always, always. It's amazing to me how God the Son did not trust himself but his Father all the time. You go back and you look at it. Over and over and over again, why are you doing what you're doing? I'm just doing what my father told me to do. I'm just doing what my father showed me. The works that I do, they're not my works. They're my father's works. I'm just doing what the father showed me to do. He trusted his father completely and implicitly. He trusted his father when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, if this cup, he just sang about that cup, if this cup can pass from me, if there's any way to save them without you and I being separated from each other, let's do it that way. And there is no other way. There, listen, listen, people get upset sometimes about Christianity being an exclusive religion because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But see, he's not being exclusive. He's being honest. It is only the blood of Christ that can pay for your sins. It is. So no man can approach the Father without the blood of Jesus Christ. But Christianity is not an exclusive religion. It's an inclusive religion. It's a completely inclusive religion because Jesus says, all that come unto me I will in no wise cast out. He says repeatedly, whosoever will may come. 
I need you to understand this, and I don't have time to go into the details, but you need to do some research, you need to do some research of your own on the ark itself. The ark, when Noah built the ark, the ark was mostly empty when God closed the door. Do you want to know, you want to know why it was empty? Because it was built to hold more people than got in it. See, when, when, when God had Noah preach, you can get in the ark and be saved. God made room for everybody to get in the ark. So when God sealed the door and the ark went up on the waters, it went up mostly empty because people didn't get in. The same thing is true today. When people die in their sins, it isn't because God doesn't love them. It isn't because God wouldn't save them. It isn't because God doesn't want to rescue them. It's because they wouldn't let him. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. Praise God. The whole world. And let me, listen, before you get, and there are people, I promise you, there are people here right now who are thinking, well, not for, and you insert some people group or some kind of people. You don't know your own sin. If you really believe that there are people that God cannot save, you have no idea how desperately terrible you are because he saved you if you're really born again. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the grace of God, we have no idea how powerful the grace of God is. And he says, don't have this faith. Don't trust God implicitly, listen, with respect of persons. Now, by the way, now listen, just, just hear me. If we're going to, verse 2, 3, and 4 are going to explain something to us. If we're going to be man-centered, right? If we're going to be man-centered, and we have a tendency to be man-centered, we are going to prefer some over others. Let's look at this. For, this is verse 2, if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place. By the way, why? Why sit thou here in a good place? Because we want you to know there's a place for you to come back to. Right? Right? Come on. Look, look. We're not just sitting you down today. We want you to know we got a place for you next week when you want to come back. Amen? Yes? All right. Just keep reading. <clears throat> and you say unto him, sit thou in a good place. And you say to the poor, yeah, I don't care where you sit. Stand thou there. Or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves? And are become judges of evil thoughts? Listen to me. Look, look, hear me. Listen to me. When churches, when churches are man-centered, they're seeking for a certain kind of people to be a part of them. It's what they want. And what happens is this. Education or race or or um, work-related type things, or certain types of sins are acceptable, but not other types of sins in your past. That's just wrong. That's just wrong. Do you understand? Jesus Christ came to save everybody. 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 Who should be welcome to come to church? And the answer is anyone who wants Jesus to save them. Everyone who wants Jesus to save them. And where should they sit? And the answer is wherever they want. Right here beside me. Sit here beside me. Sit here, right here beside me. Come back next week. I'll be here. You come sit beside me again next week. Do you have any questions? I want to help you. I want to help you. Do you understand? It's very, very clear. The Word of God is very, very clear that the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ is to trust the Father, not the church. 
Do you understand? Now listen, again, we spend a lot of time, we've been spending a great deal of time in 1 Timothy, and we understand that God has a tremendous and wonderful purpose for the church, but the church is not the Savior, Jesus is. Do you understand that? And this is really, really significant because what God wants you to tell the visitor is trust Christ. By the way, if this isn't the church for you, find another good Bible-believing church and go there. Amen? Because it isn't about our church. It's about our Savior. And we want you to know Him, and we want you to grow in grace and in the knowledge, not of Baptist doctrine, but a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to accomplish. And there is victory. There is peace. When you allow God to be God and you simply are a servant and we simply are all together, all servants, then we're willing to serve anyone and let God get all the glory. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not go, has not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. Now, what I want you to notice is this. God says at the very beginning here, God did this. You didn't do it. And now I want you to notice what he says. Hearken, my brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith? Now, let me ask you this. Is God excluding the rich themselves? Is, is God actually rejecting rich people? In other words, God says, let me see. You walk into the church. Let me look at your bank account. Oh, man, you got some money. You better leave. You can't go to church. You got too much money. You can't afford to tithe, right? You need to go right now. Is that how God feels? Is that true? Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. First Corinthians 126 says this, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why is that? Why is that? Does God exclude them? And the answer is no, it's their pride. Do you understand? Do you understand? If you trust your wealth, you can't be saved. If you trust your wisdom, you can't be saved. If you trust your strength, you can't be saved. The reason why it's hard to give out tracts down in Riverwalk is because nobody needs God down in Riverwalk because they've got everything that they need. And yet, if we go to the trailer park at the other end of the road, you can give out tracts all day long because they have an idea of what need actually is. But see, the people in Riverwalk have just as great a need as the people in the trailer park. Do you understand? We all have the same needs. Do you understand that? It, it has nothing to do with your wealth. It has nothing to do with your wisdom. It has nothing to do with your strength. It has nothing to do with who you are. It has to do with who Christ is. And he wants to set everybody free, but you have to know you need it in order to receive it. So notice that it doesn't simply say poor in this world back in chapter, go back to chapter 2, James chapter 2, verse 5. It doesn't just say poor in this world. It says rich in something, though. They don't have a lot of money, but they have a lot of what? Faith. And all that means is they trust God. The only, listen, you know what you need? You need to trust God. You know, I you know what? I don't care. You come talk to me about whatever you want to come talk to me. And please do. Call me. Come to my office. You know, meet me at a coffee shop. Whatever, meet me at your house. Whatever's convenient for you. We'll sit down and we'll talk. And I promise I'm going to tell you the same thing. You need to start trusting God. And let me say this this way again. You need to start trusting God at his word. Yes. 
You understand? You need to start trusting God at his word. Listen, I can tell you his word. One of the reasons that people go see the preacher is because they don't know their own Bible. And that's fine. It really is. If you're a baby Christian, you don't know your Bible, that's fine. But if you've been saved for 20, 30 years, you need to start knowing your Bible. Do you understand? Because God intends that you should help somebody else at some point in your life. And you can't just say, well, you know what I think? Because they got other co-workers that think. Do you understand? They don't need what you think any more than they need what they think. What they need is what does God say about it? But you have to be trusting him in order for you to be able to ask them to trust him. Because God has in a great house, there are many vessels. Some unto honor and some unto dishonor. And God help us not to be vessels unto dishonor but vessels that God can use in the lives of others for his... Listen, can you imagine what glory God can receive in your life and my life, in our daily life, as we say yes to the things that he's revealing to us right here? And he says, don't be a respecter of persons. Love everybody equally. Equally. But, verse 6, but you have... This is terrible. This is terrible. But you have despised... The poor. Now, let me tell you something. Typically, typically in your New Testament, when you see the word despise, the word despise is an interesting English word. It's a very misused English word, okay? Typically, when you see the word despised in your English Bible, it actually means to think lightly of. In other words, to not give it the credit that it deserves. When I use the word despised, I mean, what I really mean is loathe, right? I, I, I would say I despise okra, right? I despise okra. And what I mean by that is I loathe it. I don't want it in my presence. Please don't put it. I can't, I mean, I can't even pretend to eat it, right? I de- that's what I would say I despise. But the word doesn't typically mean that. What it typically means is this, to think lightly of it. And what I think lightly of is vanilla ice cream, right? I don't, I don't loathe vanilla ice cream. If you said, would you like some vanilla ice cream? I'd say, do you have any other ice cream? Right? <laughs> if you're still willing to give me ice cream afterwards, and you say, no, I just have vanilla ice cream, I'd say, do you have any chocolate topping? <laughs> right? Right? That's what, the, that typically in your Bible, when you see the word despise, it simply means to think lightly of. In other words, I don't care whether you come or not. That's the idea. And I thought that's what this verse was saying. If ye have, but ye have despised the poor. You don't care if they come or not. But that's not even the same Greek word. This word literally means to treat shamefully. You had people treat, visit your church and you treated them differently. You treated them as less than the other people. And God says, that's a shame. That's a shame. And by the way, he says, and you know what it feels to be treated like that because the rich men oppress you that way. They draw you before the judgment seats. They treat you as if you're less than they are. You should never treat anybody as if they're less than you are. Amen? You, we all know what, we all, everyone in here has at some point in their life been treated like they were less than somebody else. And God says, and don't you ever treat anybody like that. Nobody. Don't you ever treat anybody like that. Listen, I promise you, there are certain types of sinners that if we discussed that this morning, there are some of you in here, you'd say, well, I can't help that person. I can't be nice to that person. And, and God says, well, I can. Do you understand? God says, well, I can be nice to that person. I can be kind to that person. I can love that person because I died for that person. Amen? And God wants to reach all of us. People sometimes ask me if I think this is a sin or that is a sin, and I think anything that's not what God would have us to do is a sin. 
Anything that God would not have us to do is a sin. Don't pick your pet sins and say, well, at least I don't do that. Your pride is the worst sin in your life. And God wants to set us all free from all of that. This is what this is clearly saying. Now notice this. This is our daily life. Why does this matter so much? Because daily you touch the lives of so many people that nobody else loves. Nobody else loves them. Nobody else loves them. And if you will, you can help them see the love of God. Because when they say, why are you kind to me? Why do you treat me in the way that you treat me? You can simply say, I'm not kind. I'm not. But Jesus is really kind. And he has really changed my heart. I'll tell you, you know, I mean, you know, there aren't very many people in this room. I'm almost nobody in this room. In fact, I don't think there's anybody in this room that knew me before I was saved except for my wife. And I was really not, a, I mean, you got, some of you know me well enough to know I'm not a good person now. But I was really not a good person. I was really not a good person. And I have been changed. Right? How many of you could say, I was not a good person? And I have been changed. Then why would you hold whatever this person does against you against them? When you're the same, you used to be the same person. Do you understand? We were all like that. We, were, we are all still like that without Jesus. Right? But for the grace of God, I can behave myself really, really poorly. And thank God for salvation. Speaking of these people that draw them before judgment seats, notice this. Notice what it says. Now listen, this is what it, when you have arrogance, when you have pride, this is the problem. When you, when you treat others differently, do not they blaspheme that holy name by which you're called. Now, he's speaking again about the rich. He's speaking about the wealthy. He's speaking about the people who do not think they have any need. But let me tell you something. What I'm coming to realize is this. When we treat people differently because of where they're from or what their life is like, we also blaspheme our Lord's name because we misrepresent him when we do that because he will love them. He will help them, and he wants us to be the vessels that he does that with. He's looking for you to let him use you to be the vessel that changes that. And we see this in verse 8, and we'll close with this. Verses 8 and 9. Notice this. If he fulfilled the royal law, it's funny how that's it, the royal law. There are only two laws, right? There are only really two laws. Love God, love your neighbor. Yes? Right? Let me say this again. It's surprising how, how helpful this is to people. And there are a lot of people um, who, there are actually a number of visitors here today. So let me say this. The Bible says that the law was given because of transgression. The Bible says the law was given because of transgression. Okay, you know what that means? That God made a law because we don't love each other. The law was never meant to justify anyone. If we loved each other like we're supposed to love each other, there's no reason for a law at all. It's completely unnecessary. If God says to me, love Greg Bailey, and I say, I will, Lord, he doesn't have to tell me, don't lie to Greg Bailey. Don't steal from Greg Bailey. Don't do anything to hurt Greg Bailey. He doesn't have to tell me any of that if I love Greg Bailey. But because men don't love like we're supposed to love, God said, now we're going to have to make some rules. Do you understand? So the law was never given to justify anybody. The law was given because we aren't justified, because we aren't loving, because we aren't caring. And because that is true, God says, now we're going to have to make some rules. 
Now we're going to have to make some rules. But in the rules that he gave us, he said, now all of these rules can be summed up in two rules. One, just love me. Love me as I love you. And two, love your neighbors as you love yourself. That's it. And you would think, that's, doesn't that sound easy? I mean, God loves me. He feeds me, lets me breathe his oxygen, lets me walk around in his sunshine and in his rain. God does always want, it would be pretty easy to love God, but we don't. And of course I can love my neighbor as myself. They're just me over there, right? But I can't. Because I found out that they're kind of a jerk. Amen? And you know what they found out about you? The same thing. Amen? Amen? If ye fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced as the law, of the law as transgressors. So now look at here, and we're just going to close this morning. But I need you to understand this. When you love partially, in other words, you love some and don't love others. When you love partially, please don't pretend that you're a good Christian because that's not what God is after in our lives. It's not. If you're being conformed to the image of Christ, then you're going to love as Jesus Christ loves. Amen? Yes or no? Yes or no? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I mean, we use, I use the word jerk a lot. How many jerks did Jesus run into in his life? And the answer is, all of them, <laughs> right? Right? Yes or no? How, listen, how many times is, I mean, really, really, we're talking about really some really despicable people. How many times is Jesus in the presence of some pretty mean-spirited, despicable people? And how many of them does he not love? And, he, and the answer is he loves all of them. He loves, even when he was rebuking them, he's doing so because he loves them. Look, you can't stay like this, guys. You can't stay like this. If you stay like this, if you die like this, it's going to be tragic. You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to change your mind. You're going to have to understand it's not okay. You are actually blocking people from coming to my Father. Do you have any idea how terrible it's going to be for you on Judgment Day if you keep blocking people from coming to see my Father? You've got to change. This has got to change. He loved them all. He loved them all. And, what's the th- and who, did, who did he heal? Tell me, you, listen, just think for just a moment. Who did Jesus heal? And the answer is literally. Every single person that came to him. What did he heal them of? And the answer is everything. Literally everything. There's nothing that Jesus can't save from. Nothing. There's nothing that can be in the life of anybody that you're going to meet today or tomorrow that Jesus can't rescue them from. Nobody. Nothing. And here's the thing. We are his ambassadors. It is, it, is, it is our privilege, not responsibility, it's our privilege to go to wherever you're going to go to lunch and to be able to say to whoever's going to wait on you when you go to lunch that God actually loves them. But don't give them lip service. Don't give them a flip moment of your life. Let them know that God really cares about them, really loves them, and that he will save them. And we have to, listen, we have to be caring more about them than we are caring about us. Do you understand? I don't have time. How much does Jesus care about himself? He doesn't care about himself at all. And he's God. Right? I came not to be ministered unto. Do you realize that Jesus, do you realize that as the almighty God, he could have come to earth, been born in a major, said, put me on a throne and everybody worship me because I'm God. Yes? And he would have been worthy of the worship. Yes? As soon as he could speak, he could have said, I'm God the son. Y'all need to worship me. 
But he said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. So we as the children of God need to behave like the Son of God. Amen? And it's not about us. It isn't about us. And thank God it's not about us. I mean this all in my heart. It is so wonderful to be set free where it isn't about you anymore. It is so wonderful when you don't have to worry about whether you get yours. I don't need mine. I have Jesus's. Amen? Everything that he earned is mine. Yes? No? I mean, I understand my Bible to say that everything that he, I am a fellow heir, I am a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he earned, he promised to give to me. Yes? Why do I need anything else? And the answer is I don't. And neither do you. Praise God. And neither do you. So therefore, you and I are perfectly free to not be a respecter of persons, but to be able to love and care about every single person that you come into contact with. And every opportunity that we are given to love others is a gift from God to show the difference between biblical Christianity and the rest of the religion of the world.